Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 9, Daggers of the Sakari. I'm your host, Spartan, and with me are my friends and co-hosts, Knight and Walla. I'd like to welcome you both back. Uh, hope you're doing well. How was your How was your break? Your vacation? It was going. It went great. I I wasn't really vacationing. I was stuck doing uni work. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, I wasn't. I was at the wedding. Never mind. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Uh, I'm glad to to have you both back, and I think that the listeners are really going to like this episode. It's generally an unknown topic, and let's be honest, who doesn't like a little bit of murder every now and then in their history? So stab, stab, let's get into this episode. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar. Secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode, or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, as well as the Hardtack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree listed in the episode description, or you can just search Hardtack Pod, that's one word, on any of those platforms and you'll be able to find us pretty easily. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We'd like to start out this episode with a bit of a disclaimer. The subject of this episode contains religious and political themes, which is to be expected given the topic. Roman occupation and Jewish assassins sort of says it all. We largely relied on ancient sources, specifically that of Josephus's Judean War, and some rhetorical analysis of early Judaism and its related literature research. Not all ancient historians are to be taken at their very word, nor are religious texts and oral histories exempt from criticism and speculation. With this in mind, we will do our best to present the facts as such and highlight points considered to be speculation as just that, mere speculation. It is also important that we mention we are not here to dispute, 
or debate the historical accuracy of the topic, nor to discuss the religious and political themes. What we hope to bring you is a history of a group of ancient Jewish assassins who resorted to murder and asymmetrical warfare, rather than submit to Roman authority. So for some background, we need to set the stage a bit before we really can get into the guts of the topic. Who were the Sicarii? The Sicarii were a group of Jewish resistance fighters who conducted asymmetrical warfare and assassinations in opposition to Roman rule during the first century CE, specifically during the first Jewish-Roman war, which took place between 66 and 73 CE. The etymology of the word Sicarii is important. It is not a Judean word, and therefore it is not a name that the group would have referred to themselves as. Sicarii is a Latin word, and it is the plural form of Sicarius, meaning dagger man. Sica was the Latin word for a curved dagger. Sicarius in later Latin was a word used for murderer, so already we can see that there is some negative connotation aimed at the group. The name was bestowed upon the group of Jewish resistance fighters by the Romans, and it was meant to insult and disparage. Keep in mind that the Romans valued symmetrical traditional warfare on a battlefield and openly displayed disdain for deceitful tactics. Although the Roman Empire and its people were just as deceitful, murderous, and at times cowardly as the enemies they declared to be dishonorable. We also need to introduce a key player of the Sicarii, Eleazar ben Yair. We do not have a great amount of information about Eleazar, but what we do know is that Josephus claimed he was a descendant of Judah the Galilean, who many scholars identify as Judah, the son of Hezekiah, who was put to death by Herod I, or Herod the Great, and Galilee. He became the leader of the Sicarii. He held the fortress of Masada at the beginning of the First Jewish-Roman War in 66 CE, and he ruled there as a tyrant. And we also know that the histories contain some contradictory information about the man. Of note, Josephus repeatedly speaks poorly of the Sicarii and Judean War, though he praises Eleazar and refers to him as a, quote, valiant man, though he is a tyrant. Honestly, Josephus just doesn't seem to have his shit together when it comes to Eleazar. There's a lot of uh, mixed signals coming from the from the uh, ancient historian on this individual. So let's chat a bit more about the Sakari uprising. So from this moment forward, I'll be referring to this book called Jewish Revolts Against Rome, AD 66 to 135, A Military Analysis. It was written by author James Bloom, and basically the book goes into detail about the supremacy of the Roman Empire that was aggressively challenged by Jewish rebellions, such as the Zealots and the Sicarii. Basically, this analytical history focuses objectively on the military aspects of the Judean uprisings. So, who are the Zealots and what do they have to do with the Sicarii? Well, the Zealots were a political movement founded by Judas of Galilee and a Pharisee named Zadok. Herod expert H.A.M. Jones characterized the political movement as the, quote, formal rejection of the opportunist fatalism of the conservative wing of the Pharisee, end quote. The movement is also equated by Jones as a movement that asserted, quote, God would help only those who helped themselves and it was the duty of every Jew to fight for national independence, end quote. From the Zealots, there was an extremist outgrowth of factions who pursued the hastening of the kingdom by assassination of all whom they perceived as collaborators with their Roman oppressors. This became a powerful clandestine network known as the Sicarii. 
According to Bloom, there is little evidence to suggest that it was an all-out armed revolt or that it was widespread. However, the effects of the Sakari terror campaign permeated a generation. Yeah, so it's really important to note here and to make clear that the Zealots were not the same as the Sakari. And the connection between the two is actually in uh, a topic of dispute. Uh, historian Ben Yehuda is of the opinion that the Zealots led a broad revolution that resulted in the formation of several subgroups to include the Sakari. In contrast, historian Richard A. Horsley views the Zealots and the Sakari as entirely separate, uh, suggesting that they actually formed at the same time and just happened to share similar goals given their resistance to Roman occupation. So uh, it's not entirely clear as to um, the origins of the Sakari, whether or not they were a part of the Zealots or just influenced or happened to sprout up at the same time. What we do know is that Judea was under Roman occupation um, and the Roman occupation army remained consistent. Only one new military unit was known to have been created in Judea, which consisted of a cohort of Roman citizens called the Cohorts Italica. The regular garrison of Judea consisted of the five infantry cohorts and one cavalry regiment or drawn from the Sabastines. The latter, although officered by Romans, continued to recruit from the cities of Sebaste and Caesarea. This arrangement was supposedly high, highly provocative in nature since the two cities were known for their anti-Semitic sentiments and the conduct of the troops in contact with Jews was openly belligerent. It was understood that if the police force stationed in Caesarea could not cope with the situation, then the legate of Syria would send down reinforcements from Antiochus. Not only was Judea under Roman occupation, the region also began to deal with the famine of the mid-40s, which had essentially put a lot of economic pressure on the peasants and their landlords, which may have led to an increase in banditry, and an increase in banditry, but also an increase in the more organised and politically aware resistance, which specifically emerged in the Sakari movement. And uh, the Sakari movement was aimed at terrorising and rendering ineffective the local aristocracy. Over time, there was this festering Roman corruption and incompetence under the ensuing procurators of Judea, respectively Felix, Festus, Albinius and Florus. And these guys brought things to a boiling point, essentially. Notably, Florus's ruthless repression is argued by Bloom to be the cause of the eruption of the open revolt. Marcus Antonius Felix, however, was an interesting and uniquely highly irregular appointment. He was a freedman or emancipated slave. Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician, had a very low opinion of Felix, claiming that, quote, in every kind of brutality and profligacy, he exercised the power of a king with the temper of a slave, end quote. Felix was, as Bloom puts it, quote, quite energetic in his policing of the brigand warlords proliferating at the time, end quote. One of the first victims of the Sakari was the high priest Jonathan, a pro-Roman double dealer who was, quote, cozy, end quote, with Felix. There's no detail here that kind of specifies exactly when or where the assassination took place. All I can gather that was Jonathan was a high value target taking into consideration he was amongst the first assassinated. 
Now, in terms of concealment, how did the Sakari manage to pull off these stealthy assassinations? Well, a part of the process, Bloom mentions that the festival seasons were the favourable seasons for the Sakari in terms of when to commit their attacks, as there were consistent, closed-packed crowds within the temple precincts. That allowed them to close in on any unsuspecting target without being recognised. It's also interesting to note that whilst they were undertaking these assassinations, they were assisted with distractions by their associates who were working the crowd. Yeah, so I read similar bits of information during the research process, and uh, Josephus made it clear uh, that the Sicari operated during religious festivals, and this is important because for the Sicari who were Jewish to do so, uh, this would have been sacrilege. Remember that the Romans in the first century CE, they were polytheistic. Judea, however, was monotheistic. Roman rule meant Roman religion, and this was an issue for the Sicarii and the Jewish people. Josephus and his contemporaries were able to build opposition to Sicarii practices, obviously assassination, swaying support for the group, or against the group, by marking them hypocrites stating that they were in violation of the Jewish faith that they claimed to be driven by and that they were supposedly protecting. To conduct assassinations and bring weapons into a holy place, here the temple, during religious festivals, this was blasphemous. It was blasphemy for them to do so. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, the more the Sakari did their part in plundering the estates of the upper levels of the priesthood and their associates, the more the higher order of the priests were desperate for protection from the Romans. Felix's inability to suppress the increasing disorder in Judea led to his replacement by Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time, with Festus. According to Bloom, Festus seemed to be a more relatively moderate, prudent governor. He gives an example of this by referring to the way he handled the situation pertaining to the voyeurism of Agrippa II. Quoting from Bloom, quote, The latter was in the habit of standing at his window while eating and looking down on the inner court of the temple while the priests were performing rites. This routine annoyed the priests who had a wall built to block his view. Agrippa told Festus that he planned to have the wall torn down so he could could again view the proceedings below. Festus informed Agrippa he'd have to take this up with Nero and in due course allowed the priests to send a delegation to Rome to make their case with the emperor. Nero agreed with the priests and the war remained, end quote. However, the carnage from the Sakari only increased significantly during Festus's incumbency, to the point where the Roman authorities, bodyguards of the wealthy class, couldn't intervene in the killing. And despite this, another prophet arose who gathered a large following, which in the eyes of the Sakari, they had to be bloodily suppressed. Albinius and Jessius Florus were two procurators of the four mentioned earlier when we were talking about the famine. They were absolutely notorious for their corruption. Specifically, Albinius was well known for releasing prisoners for bribes and making arrangements in advance. After taking up office, Albinius began arresting a large number of Sakari en masse. This ultimately led to the Sakari needing to change their tactics. So what did they do in response to this outbreak of arrest? The Sakari kidnapped the secretary of Eleazar, the chief administrator of the temple and son of the then high priest, 
and threatened to kill him unless 10 of the assassins were released. And this is where it gets really interesting. It is speculated that Eleazar, according to Jones in the Herods of Judea, had collaborated with the Sicarii in concocting the scheme. However, Eleazar's father, ex-high priest Ananias who later became the leader of the moderate faction in the first Jerusalem Revolutionary Council, used a combination of diplomacy and bribery to secure the release of his son's secretary. The Sakari supposedly regularly kidnapped Ananias' relatives, which redeemed those among their commanders whom Albinius arrested, uh, which lo and behold funded their, quote, war chest, end quote. So that brings us to the last procurator, Florus, who replaced Festus after his death in his third term, and it only gets worse from here. Bloom writes it quite well. Quote, In the broad sweep of the events of the first century AD, one can discern the fourfold, the fourfold cyclical pattern of injustice, protest, repression, and revolt. As injustices multiplied, so did protests, at first nonviolent, then violent. As protests grew stronger, so did repression. And as repression reached its peak under Florus, the population finally resorted to total renunciation of Roman rule and violent revolt. End quote. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned the fortress of Masada. This was captured by the Sakari. Masada was just that. It was a massive Roman fortress. Masada is described as, quote, a nearly impregnable mountain fortress built in the first century BCE fortified by Herod the Great and occupied by the Romans, end quote. Take some time and search up the image uh, of Masada or multiple images of Masada. There are some really great aerial views of the ruins online, and once you see where it was located, it quickly becomes understandable why it was built there and why it was considered impregnable in the first place. It was situated at the top of a massive plateau about 1,400 feet or 430 meters in elevation on the eastern edge of the Judean desert, and it overlooked the Dead Sea. You can visit the ruins of Masada, and it's now a national park. Anyway, uh, in 66 CE, the same year that the first Jewish-Roman War began, the Sakari captured Masada and used it as their base of operations. How did this happen? is the question. Given its fortifications, its location, and the Roman soldiers uh, that were already stationed there, not much is given in the ancient histories. But Josephus does tell us that, quote, at the time, some who were particularly inclined for battle, this being the Sakari, gathered together and made a rush for a fortress called Masada. After capturing it by stealth, They slew the Roman guards and placed their own instead. Now, there isn't much uh, on that other than Josephus consistently refers to Masada as being in the possession of the Sicarii from 66 CE to 73 CE. I just want to add that it is very noteworthy that the Sakari's possession of Masada would last through their entire evolution, as it were. Josephus records that the first head of the Sakari was Menahem, a man named Menahem, who during his time captured Masada, he was the one who did that, and would at a later time kill the high priest Ananias. And we talked about Ananias earlier, he was the one who had his son kidnapped. Josephus would describe that after these actions, Menahem would, quote, become barbarously cruel, 
and as he thought he had no antagonist to dispute the management of affairs with him, he was no better than an insupportable tyrant. End quote. This characterization of the Sakari and their leaders as the ones that would become the very thing they fought against is a constant theme riddled throughout Josephus's writing of them. Anytime he talked about them, it was always this almost contradictory thing where they were becoming the very thing that they wanted to destroy. And Spartan made mention of that earlier. However, Menahem's control would be cut short, as the Sakari would be dispersed in a battle with a random group of zealots, a situation that ultimately led to Menahem's death. A relative of Menahem by the name, and this is another Eleazar, actually this is the Eleazar that was previously mentioned by Spartan, son of Yair, would then assume control of the remaining group at Masada, and there they would stay there in the interim. They kind of take a back seat in the rest of Josephus' account, except for when they spread over into Egypt, which is a whole other kind of worms. Right, yeah. So Masada was just not the base of operations for the Sakari, but it also would be the location of their dissolution. I chose to call it a dissolution rather than destruction because their demise is disputed. Uh, and Knight, you just hinted at that. What I'll do here is explain what occurred according to Josephus and then provide some archaeological information that contradicts uh, Josephus' narrative. According to the histories, the Roman governor Lucius Flavius Silva mobilized the Roman 10th legion of the Strait and laid siege to Masada in 73 CE. Masada was the last fortification held by Jewish rebels and therefore was the last to be reduced by Rome during the First Jewish-Roman War. For Rome, the siege was more of an issue of engineering than anything else. To answer why it was an engineering issue is pretty simple, actually. Masada was a mountain stronghold, which has already been mentioned. The Romans needed a method to bring their siege engines and weaponry to bear against a mountain stronghold. So what they did was they built this embankment. And an embankment was basically a wall or a bank of earth or stone built to prevent uh, a river flooding an area. Uh, in more contemporary times, you might recognize an embankment as what you see when you look at a railroad uh, or a set of railroad tracks where the railroad tracks are typically built up over an area of low ground to prevent flooding from crossing the tracks, right? So that's, that's, that's kind of what an embankment is. In response, the Sakari and Masada built their own wall made of wood and earth. The Romans responded rather simply. They lit arrows with fire to burn the wall to the ground, considering that it, it was made of wood. Supposedly, a heavy north wind picked up and threatened to blow the fire back into the Roman embankment, and suddenly things changed. Josephus tells us, quote, Then, suddenly, changing direction just as by divine providence, a south wind blew full force in the opposite direction against the wall, and now it was burning through and through. This was a major change of fortune for the Sicarii. It was at this point that Eleazar decided that death was the best option for the besieged assassins. Apparently, Eleazar could not conceive any defense or offense now that the fire was encroaching upon the Sicarii, and he was of the view that defeat was inevitable. So he thought that death would be more acceptable than the slavery that would befall the women and children left behind after all the men were slaughtered by the Romans. He then delivered a speech to justify this decision. It essentially was a call for the defenders to live up to their convictions. The Sicarii were adamant that they would not serve the Romans, and Eleazar claimed that their current predicament was actually God granting them a favor, the choice of their own demise. Eleazar told the people that God had passed a sentence on them, that they had sinned, 
and were being given the chance to pay the penalty. Eleazar then concluded that they were to destroy first the fortress by fire, and then themselves. Not all were convinced, and Eleazar was forced to deliver a second speech that can be simply described as an appeal to the immortality of the defenders' souls. In other words, their deaths were but of the body, not of the spirit, and they would live on eternally. It was built up as a righteous sacrifice. Death by suicide was prohibited, according to religious beliefs, so lots were cast, and those that lost uh, were the decided killers of the Masada population. It has been claimed that the Sakari committed suicide, and in a way that is accurate. However, it is better defined as an agreed-upon slaughter. The unfortunate Sakari murdered the population of, according to Josephus, 960 persons within Masada. It was considered a noble death to die free rather than at the hands of the polytheistic Romans. Allegedly, seven were alive the next morning, having hidden in a cistern, all of which were women and children. They were very, in this point, this, they're very true to their commitment to their mantra, no lord but God. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that there was some archaeological evidence that contradicted Josephus' account. So uh, I want to I want to cover that briefly here. Quote, the common account of what happened at Masada relies heavily on Josephus's works, but his account has been contradicted by recent archaeology, which indicates two buildings suffered extensive fire damage instead of just one, and that there may have been as few as 28 bodies. Josephus claimed that the defenders numbered 960. Archaeologists are not even sure that the besieged Jews deliberately set the fire or if they committed mass suicide. What is especially telling is that because Judaism forbade suicide, Josephus had the defenders commit joint murder in the same way he had suggested to his own group before he was captured. It therefore appears that Josephus, who was not present at the siege and strongly disapproved of the revolt and the Sicarii as a whole, embellished some of the facts or never knew them at all. End quote. So that's pretty interesting to consider, given he is really the only ancient source we have on the uh, mass suicide that was said to have taken place at Masada. Supposedly, he had suggested his own group commit suicide before he was captured. And I, I, I know, Knight, you, you have something on this. There's a lot of comparing and contrasting that is done with Josephus' incident and then with the history he wrote about Masada. Um, in this case, you have Josephus. He lives, he's actually against the whole suicide thing with the rest of the group. And ultimately, he betrays his back on them because they all commit suicide. He doesn't and eventually submits to Rome, whereas you have these people who are not going to submit to Rome and they all die. Um, some people, historic, some historians have taken that as a rhetorical bit going on here. One of the big things about this, and it should be noted, is the speech that Eliezer gave is the most questionable part about everything that Josephus has said about to the Sakari. Despite it being the high point, yeah. that's this is the most questionable bit. Yeah, yeah, because he writes about it like he was there. And, and I have yet to see a historian actually come out and say that this was historically word for word true. Right. Because there are a lot of details. One noted that you have, again, Jewish people here committing suicide. And there's just a lot of here and there's in the details. And I can get into a whole bunch of splew of details. But really, that is that needs to be said that this is like the most questionable part because there's a lot of things that don't add up. He, he very much romanticized 
uh, I think, I think the narrative, um, because while the defenders allegedly committed mass suicide and, and, and Masada, he claimed that they did so on Passover, which again, just further romanticizes the, the entire incident. Um, but it would have also for them being Jewish would have made it an impure act committed, uh, on an important holiday. And it just, that just doesn't add up. Uh, because for, for, for the Jews, suicide had long been considered a forbidden act, um, as would later be codified and, and some of their religious texts and, and laws. So that, that is an interesting bit. And I don't want to bore the details too long because this has gone long enough. But um, it, it just goes back actually to a discussion about who is Josephus writing to? Who's his work for? But he's really writing to a Roman audience which is a Gentile audience. What you see here is not only the form of tragedy that's common in Greek um, plays, um, but he also does it at the same time presents the Jewish people as noble. Like throughout all this, he's presenting them as noble. And so that's kind of what he does here. They're very noble to the end, even though he absolutely hates the Sakari. Yeah, so it's obvious that there's a lot of contradiction from Josephus in the narrative that he left for us. From his description of Eleazar as both valiant and a tyrant, to his disdain for the Sicarii, but his respect for their convictions, it's clear that he was quite biased and almost certainly embellished in his writing. Well, that will do it for Episode 9, Daggers of the Sicarii. This is a topic of intrigue, though it has its conflicting claims. Josephus was not without his flaws and was obviously biased, so we'll never be entirely sure of the history and what occurred at Masada with any absolute accuracy. Either way, there is enough to discuss and understand, and the speculation can be a good time. Check out the episode description for our sources and conduct your own research into an interesting topic if you feel compelled. Next week is episode 10, and it's honestly amazing that we've gotten this far so soon. Episode 1 feels like it was only yesterday. We will be doing a special episode next week in honor of our podcast name, Hardtack, and we will explore an interesting and somewhat appetizing history of military chow from ancient to modern times. Bit of a spoiler, take some time to make your own Hardtack so that you can experience it with us. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your Hardtack dry.